While we were marching through Georgia, everybody swing your honey, swing your high and low. The Alaman left for the old left hand, around the ring you go. A grand old right to left walk on your heel and toe. Promenade that pretty gal to Georgia. I've been doing uh, quite a few true crime episodes lately. And really, they aren't my first choice for podcast episodes, but often a story comes up that is just too good not to share. This is one of them, and it's all about murder and justice and questionable science. This is Moving Through Georgia, and this week it's Eula Mae Thompson and the bumps on her head. Eula Elrod was born in 1904 near Chatsworth, Georgia, into very extreme poverty. Her family ran a small farm and barely got by. She would find a way out by getting married at 15, almost married again in 19, and have a series of attachments with men, including one with a married law enforcement officer she would only refer to as Happy. She would end up in Etowah, Tennessee because of another marriage. The problem there was that she hadn't divorced or annulled the previous marriages, but the man assured her that it wouldn't matter if they got married in another state. She made arrangements to marry this fellow, went to Etowah to meet him, and he never showed up. At 21, she met and married Cliff Thompson. Thompson was a barber, but he also had partnered with an African-American man named Jim Moss to produce and distribute moonshine. Before long, Eula was helping out and accompanying the men on runs back and forth from Tennessee to Georgia. And remember that married police officer she called Happy? Well, it seems she never really broke it off with him, and she would sometimes sneak out to see him behind Cliff's back. On the night of August 5th, 1927, Coleman Osborne and his wife Sadie were sleeping in their home in Murray County, Georgia. Osborne ran a small gas station and in the middle of the night, someone came to the window and began to knock, asking Osborne to wake up and sell him some gas. Reluctantly, Osborne agreed, and as he got dressed, he mentioned to his wife that he recognized the voice. It's a black man that had come to the store a few days previously. It's not surprising he would recognize him. Jim Moss was fairly well known for his voice and his way of speaking. He would be described in the newspaper as a black man who spoke like a white man. I'm not sure exactly what that means, but I'm guessing it means that he was very recognizable from his speech. Anyway, Osborne walks out to the store, and his wife hears him talking to the visitor. At one point, Osborne yells, You! And a few shots ring out. Sadie ran to the gas station along with a neighbor, and Osborne was found dead from multiple gunshot wounds. A county police officer named J.D. Butler came and surveyed the scene. And you might need to start writing names down pretty soon to keep them straight. We'll have a few more characters come and go before this thing is done. Just remember, this this J.D. Butler is not Eula's friend Happy. But we will hear from him in a little while. As Butler listened to Sadie's story, he was approached by another fella named Joe Anderson. 
Anderson was a musician who had been walking home from a dance with two friends when a car stopped alongside them and demanded money. They didn't have any, so the robbers took their instruments. He didn't get a good look at them, but he knew it was two men and a woman in a convertible Ford, and as they drove off, someone in the car fired a few shots at the musicians. Butler looked into the scene of their robbery and found identical tire tracks and identical shell cases. Most importantly, whatever gun the robbers were using had some kind of defect or aberration in the firing pin, so the marks it made on the casings were unique and unmistakable. Because the musicians were robbed on a dirt road, Butler was able to follow the tire track until it hit asphalt in Etowah, Tennessee. He made contact with the local police and told them what he knew, and they all began investigating people known to drive convertible Fords. Stories of the arrest are a little varied, but the basic facts are that Happy apparently called Eula and warned her that the police were headed toward their home to arrest her, her husband, and their moonshine business partner. She assumed that that was over a minor, previous run-in with the law, so she didn't take it very seriously. They dumped what liquor they had and prepared to meet the police, but they were shocked to hear that they were actually being arrested for murder. Butler would search the house and find a gun with the same caliber as the murder weapon and a convertible Ford with the same tire track. Eula, Clifford, and Jim Moss were extradited back to Chatsworth, Georgia to stand trial. In her original confession, Eula May says that she was in a car with her husband Cliff and their partner Jim Moss, and they had just finished a run from Tennessee to Georgia. She said that Moss was drunk. The car was low on gas, but Jim Moss said that he could get gas at Osborne's store. All he had to do was wake Osborne up. For reasons we'll get into in a minute, Eula May did not want herself or Clifford to be seen by Osborne. Moss left the car and walked to the gas station. A few minutes later, Eula and Cliff heard some gunshots and Moss came running back claiming that he shot Osborne because he tried to shortchange him. The three then decided to drive back to Tennessee but Moss made them stop one more time to rob those musicians on the dirt road before they drove home. Now there is a hole in that story because Osborne's wife heard him shout, you, and then there were gunshots. So it kind of, you know, implies that there was another person involved. There was a short trial and all three, Eula, Cliff, and Jim Moss, were convicted and sentenced to die in the electric chair. Jim and Cliff didn't put up much of a defense. Someone had seen the three in the car, heading toward the general direction of Chatsworth. The car matched the tire prints, and they found the murder weapon with the unique firing pin in Eula and Cliff's house. Cliff and Jim basically mumbled that they were innocent and left it at that. The men were scheduled to die, and Eula's case went on to appeal. But Eula wasn't done yet. She would make an attempt to save her husband by confessing that she had plotted the murder with another man. Here comes another character. 
She claimed that Thompson and Moss knew nothing about the killing and she had actually engineered it with a Chatsworth man named B.W. Swan. She had been seeing Swan here and there and that Coleman Osborne was aware of the affair and had seen them driving together. He even teased them about it, saying he would call Swan's wife and Eula's husband and tell them everything. In July, about three weeks before the killing, Cliff supposedly even got a letter from Mrs. Swan about the affair, and Cliff had spoken to a lawyer about suing Swan for alienation of affection. Eula never did produce any paperwork, and no lawyer came forward and said they had spoken to Cliff, but the story continues. Swan and Eula met. Swan was despondent, not so much about his marriage, but at the prospect that he might have to pay some money to Cliff. He asked Eula what they could do, and she proposed a plan to kill Osborne. The idea was to kill Osborne and frame Cliff Thompson, Eula's husband, for the murder, thereby getting rid of the two obstacles in their way. She said that Swan went ahead and committed the crime, or maybe paid somebody to do the shooting. After the killing, Swan sent Eula May the gun so that she could place it among Cliff's belongings. She said she knew that this would mean her execution would be carried out, but she could die with a clearer conscience having told the truth. So her first version of the story has the three joyriding to Chatsworth and Jim Moss killing Osborne and robbing those musicians. When they are all convicted of murder, she changes the story and says that she conspired with a fella named Swan to commit the murder so that, you know, people wouldn't talk about their affair, and that Cliff Thompson and Jim Moss are completely innocent. Nobody bought it. Cliff and Jim would soon die on the same day in the electric chair, Moss leaving a wife and four children behind. Two days later, Eula was put on the calendar for her execution. It would happen on September 21st. Less than a day before her execution, the governor, Lamartine Hardman, announced a 60-day stay and then would eventually commute her case to life imprisonment. People started to wonder, why would the governor suddenly take an interest in the case after refusing to interfere with the executions of Moss and Thompson, especially when Eula had protested that they were innocent? Governor Lamartine Hardman, and I might not be pronouncing that right, he served from 1927 to 1931. He was born in Harmony Grove, which later became the City of Commerce. He graduated from the University of Georgia Medical School and joined his father's medical practice. He had an interest in science and was an early adopter for anesthesia, building on the work of Crawford Long in Jefferson. He owned a lot of land and was very, very wealthy. He actually purchased the land now called the Hardman Farm in Sauti Nacucci. He was 71 when elected and died when he was 80. He's buried in commerce. Hardman also studied something that was considered a science at the time, and we're talking about phrenology. That's the belief that you could understand someone's personality through the shape of their skull or their bumps on their head. When Eula's new confession threw a monkey wrench into the wheels of justice, Hardman asked to see photographs of the three suspects. 
Through careful consideration of the shapes of their skulls, he was able to determine that the men were probably beyond hope, but Eula had some potential for reform. I, I don't know how much longer I can stretch this episode out, so I've added an extra episode on the history of phrenology. It should be out now. What's important to know is that the heyday of phrenology had passed quite a while earlier, and it was mostly a discredited science by the time Hardman picked up his picture of Eula May. Science or not, it saved her life, and Hardman commuted her sentence from death to life at the prison farm in Milledgeville. But not the end of the story. Just about 48 hours after the announcement that she would live rather than be executed, she announced her engagement to a railroad news agent she had met while being transferred to some prison facility or another. Yeah, she was getting married. Again. Later, she would make the news again by filing a lawsuit against the four men who took her husband from Tennessee to Georgia, claiming they did not follow the legal extradition process. Her demand for $50,000 was rejected fairly quickly. We are not done yet. A Savannah paper has an article about a fellow named George Fickling, who had been convicted of murder. His lawyers were asking the governor to study a picture of Fickling, hoping the shape of his skull might save his life. It didn't. Well, before we finish, let me just say that Moving Through Georgia is a history podcast that focuses on Northeast Georgia but wanders around a bit. If you want to hear more stories of Georgia's history or you want other people to hear more stories of Georgia's history, you can do that by giving us five stars on whatever podcast app you listen on. Jim Moss, Clifford Thompson's partner in the moonshine business, incidentally was a former professional baseball player. Of course, this would have been an all-black team, and there isn't a lot of documentation of players' comings and goings. He may have played for the Chicago American Giants and a minor league team called the Havana Stars, who played in Chicago. Oh, hey, one last note, and I haven't been able to confirm this. One article mentions that Eula May was paroled in the 30s, but then returned to prison for killing her brother. More information on that as I find it. That's all.